It is one minute past the hour. Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for your patience with the off week last week. We are back at it as usual. I don't have any announcements. So Robert has another lesson for us. All right. Well, hello, everyone. As usual, we are going to start with the reading of the scripture. Chapter 13 is fairly short, so we should cover all of it today. Here we go. Oh, I need to turn on my audio sharing. I didn't do that ahead of time. Um, okay, I'm going to click play. Let me know if you don't hear it. Just before the Passover feast, Jesus knew that his time had come to depart from this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he now loved them to the very end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, that he should betray Jesus. Because Jesus knew that the Father had handed all things over to him, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he got up from the meal, removed his outer clothes, took a towel, and tied it around himself. He poured water into the wash basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to dry them with the towel he had wrapped around himself. Then he came to Simon Peter. Peter said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not understand what I am doing now but you will understand after these things. Peter said to him, You will never wash my feet. Jesus replied, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus replied, The one who has bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you disciples are clean, but not every one of you, for Jesus knew the one who was going to betray him. For this reason, he said, not every one of you is clean. So when Jesus had washed their feet and put his outer clothing back on, he took his place at the table again and said to them, Do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and do so correctly, for that is what I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you too ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example. You should do just as I have done for you. I tell you the solemn truth, the slave is not greater than his master, nor is the one who is sent as a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you understand these things, you will be blessed if you do them. What I am saying does not refer to all of you. I know the ones I have chosen. But this is to fulfill the scripture, the one who eats my bread has turned against me. I am telling you this now, before it happens, so that when it happens, you may believe that I am he. I tell you the solemn truth, whoever accepts the one I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. When he had said these things, Jesus was greatly distressed in spirit, and testified, I tell you the solemn truth, one of you will betray me. The disciples began to look at one another, worried and perplexed to know which of them he was talking about. One of his disciples, the one Jesus loved, was at the table to the right of Jesus in a place of honor. So Simon Peter gestured to this disciple to ask Jesus who it was he was referring to. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved leaned back against Jesus' chest and asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus replied, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread after I have dipped it in the dish. Then he dipped the piece of bread in the dish and gave it to Judas Iscariot, Simon's son. And after Judas took the piece of bread, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are about to do, do quickly. Now none of those present at the table understood why Jesus said this to Judas. Some thought that because Judas had the money box, Jesus was telling him to go buy whatever they needed for the feast, or to give something to the poor. Judas took the piece of bread and went out immediately. Now it was night. When Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and he will glorify him right away. Children, I am still with you for a little while. You will look for me. And just as I said to the Jewish religious leaders, where I am going you cannot come, now I tell you the same. I give you a new commandment, to love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. Everyone will know by this that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. 
Peter said to him, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? I tell you the solemn truth. The rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. The Gospel of John, chapter 13. Okay, so that was chapter 13. And um, as usual, I am going to focus on the main themes in the text. I am going to begin with the setting of this chapter. What is going on? Uh, you know, I want to talk about the banquet, essentially the scene itself, because I think it's really going to help us understand the action, essentially what is happening. Well, first, we need to notice that the hour has come. Right. Throughout this study, we have noticed that repeatedly the Gospel of John tells us the hour has not come, the hour has not come. Some of the examples that you guys may recall would, would be at the very beginning when Jesus tells his own mother, woman, why are you saying this to me? My time has not yet come. Right, That was in chapter 2, I believe. So very early on. Then... Remember the brothers of Jesus, they tell him, hey, go with us to the Feast of Tabernacles. And Jesus says, no. Uh, and why not? Because my time has not yet arrived. That was in chapter 7. Um, and then also in chapter 7, there's there's a point in, in the story where the re the religious leaders try to get Jesus, presumably to stone him right there or to arrest him, something along those lines. But nothing happened to him. Why? Um you know, no one laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come. But chapter 13 begins with Jesus knew his time had come. So we are coming close to the end of the story, which is going to trigger right a, a, a number of events. So that that is very important. We are decidedly moving into the passion of the Christ. And that's just not a title of a movie, but the passion of Jesus, it is his suffering on the cross, or in including the suffering that led up to the crucifixion. That comes from a Latin word, which means suffering or enduring. Um, so it is not what we mean when we say, oh, we're passionate about something. When we say the passion of Jesus or, you know, Christ's passion, we mean his suffering. Um, well, I think it's incredibly important that in chapter 13, as we finally kind of announce the passion and we move directly into it, what is highlighted is the love of Christ, right? Not his bravery, not his obedience, not his righteousness. And when I, when I point that out, I am by no means denying those things. Obviously, Christ is righteous. He has obeyed perfectly. You know, there's no inkling in the story that Jesus has failed in any way. Jesus has been very brave in multiple confrontations, you know, and he will continue to be brave to the point of death. And be that as it may, what the text focuses on is on love. And I know that I'm going to sound a little bit preachy today because I'll be, I, I will be talking about love quite a lot, but I think that we need to go where the text is taking us. And that, I think, certainly is the theme for this chapter. And I will kind of, uh, you know, point that out as we go along. Well, the other important part of the setting that I think we should consider is the banquet itself. What did it look like, right? They're sharing a meal and what just so we can picture it, what would this actually look like? How would it work? Normally, at that time, the Jewish people would have used chairs. Okay, that, that would have been a common practice. So like the picture that I posted on the blog normally would be accurate, but actually it is not accurate in this instance. So that picture that I posted is, is all sorts of wrong, but it's how people picture it. So whatever, I put it on there anyways. I knew that I would correct it. They would have used the same system as the Romans or the Greek. There would be a table, and then, then there would be three couches around the table. Not four, but just three of them. And, you know, these couches, quote-unquote, they, they resembled mattresses. Okay, so really picture three mattresses around the table, like twin-size mattresses. And the people attending the banquet, they would they would lay on these mattresses um, and so their face was closest to the table and their feet would be furthest away from the table. Uh, 
you know, they would be reclining on their left hand and then they would eat with their right hand. So imagine just like leaning on the floor to eat something or eating in bed, only there's a table there. <laughs> you're not on the floor, you're just on this elevated mattress. This will matter here in a little bit when you see how it is that John asks a question of, of Jesus. Now on each couch, but again, really picture a mattress, on each couch, you would have multiple people, uh, three or four people. And this is going to be a funny way of describing it, but it, it will convey the correct image. All those people are effectively spooning okay, on the same couch as they eat. And again, I know this is very kind of silly and funny, but it's important for, for how, the, you know, things develop. Okay. So that's what you need uh, to picture as they, as they eat. Um, okay. The other piece of the puzzle that we need to discuss before we can get into the more theological stuff is foot washing. What is it and how does it work? Now we have discussed feet before in this study, um, which is not a thing I thought I would say out loud, but, uh, <laughs> now we really need to focus on the, on the actual foot washing. There was a couple of ways that this could be done. Uh, water could be poured directly from just like a, you know, a pitcher essentially onto somebody's feet and then they would be washed with a towel or the water could be put in a basin and then that basin, you know, somebody would deep their dip, sorry, their feet onto, into the basin and somebody would wash them. Now the, the word in Greek that is used in chapter 13 is unclear whether we're, you know, we're using a basin or like a pitcher, but because this is indoor, this is clearly the basin situation. Okay. Um, now really the more relevant stuff that we need to discuss about foot washing is that this is an activity that was considered the lowest of the low. This was almost exclusively reserved for slaves. Whenever somebody would go to a Jewish home, the host was expected to give them water so they could wash their own feet, or if it was the home of somebody wealthy, then the host might provide them with a servant, with a slave to wash their feet. Okay. Um, there, there would be some exceptions to a slave doing this, which would be sometimes the wife of, you know, of, of the husband of the leader of the, of the household might wash his feet or sometimes a small child, but except for, for those instances, this was almost exclusively a slave's job. This really matters, right, to the interaction that is going to occur, because for for somebody, particularly for Jesus, to do this, it is really to reduce himself or or to assume the position of a slave. Sorry, guys, give me one second. Okay, my dog was was causing a mess. Um, okay. And the last thing that I have to discuss, I know I said that when I discussed foot washing, is rank and etiquette. Okay. The Jewish society, much like the Roman society, much like the Greek society, was rank-based. What nowadays we might call class-based. Rank was very important. Many things were determined by rank. Like, for example, where you would sit at a banquet would be determined by your rank. When you should speak was also determined by your rank. And for somebody to break rank, for somebody to act not according to his position would have been socially awkward and even socially defiant, right? It, it could be, it could be seen as an affront to, you know, either the host or essentially the societal system itself. Yeah. All right. So, those are all the things that, that we really have to be thinking about when we read this chapter. What does the foot washing mean? And it, I think it, it quite clearly has two meanings or it is used in two ways. One, it points to the necessity of Jesus' sacrifice. Okay, this comes out in the conversation with Peter. Right. When Peter says, Lord, you will never wash my feet. Now, I think that people, you know, if, if you've been to church before, if you've heard sermons on, 
you know, on the New Testament, Peter is always painted on this in this light of he's so kind of dumb and quick to speak and, and brash. And I don't actually agree with that depiction of Peter for whatever that's worth. Peter here is quite right. Now, of course, I'm not saying that Jesus is wrong in some moral sense, but socially speaking, Peter is absolutely right. The, what Jesus is suggesting is outrageous, and it would have been extremely offensive at the time. So Peter is by no means out of line to say, no, you will never do this. Okay, But notice the response from Jesus, and it, and it really is like a beautiful moment where Jesus says, if you do not let me do this, which we can uh, just expand from this example, right? We can expand it a little and say, if you do not let me serve you, then you have no part in me, which is, it is one of the key points of Christianity, right? This idea that we must first be served by Jesus. He has to help us out first before we can take part in him, before we can really be a Christian, before we can start enjoying this eternal life that he promises us. Now, the, I, I really find this to be outrageous. I, I, I'm kind of with Peter on this one. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I, I accept Christ's sacrifice on my behalf. I'm not denying that. But think about this idea, the fact that God came here to serve that jesus is here to serve us right when he's perfect when he's god when he's the creator you know he's the word and the word was with god and the word was god i mean we have all that and yet jesus comes to service and if we do not accept that if we do not accept that jesus has to serve us we cannot be part of him, or we cannot take part in him, I should say. It, it really is um, a stunning reversal of what one would expect, right? A any other God that you would think of, if you're thinking of like any pagan God, you know, whatever, Zeus, Odin, what is always the requirement? People must serve God. But here is the exact opposite, and it is a requirement, it is a condition. Um, so, uh, just an incredible reversal. Then we have a second meaning to this, which which comes in the next paragraph after that conversation with Peter. Jesus uses this as an example for all believers. And again, this is just another kind of outrageous thing because Jesus says, you you must do this uh, for one another. And in fact, he's going to command, and I'll, I'll talk about the commandment here in a minute, but he's going to command this kind of love between believers. Now, notice that this is really the most extreme aspect of Christianity. And it really is extreme. Uh, why? Think about, think about what Jesus is doing. Jesus is lowering himself as much as he can, he is taking the position of a slave, although he has every right in the world to do the exact opposite. And we must look at this foot washing in light of what is about to happen, in light of the passion, right? Because this foreshadows the cross, the fact that Jesus will die for people who hate him, for people who don't love him, who don't accept him. And Jesus is saying, you must do the same for one another. Okay, this is supposed to be the kind of love that Christians show for one another. Uh, a love that is humble to the extreme, a love that is sacrificial to the extreme. And this isn't just, you know, good preaching. I mean, not that I'm doing a good job, but you could see a preacher just making a, a huge deal out of this. But it is true. It is absolutely what the Gospel of John is teaching. Um, and I really think that if we lived in a more class-based society, this would hit us even harder um, because we would understand how extreme this foot washing really is. Now, um, John writes more about this in his epistles. And by the way, the word epistle just means letter. So John has a couple of later letters later on in the New Testament. And I am going to read out of 1 John, just so you guys see how John essentially 
explains this a few years later. He says, for this is the gospel message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not like Cain, who was of the evil one and brutally murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his deeds were evil, but his brothers were righteous. Therefore, do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, if the world hates you. We know that we have crossed over from death to life because we love our fellow Christians. The one who does not love remains in death. And I'm going to stop there. I quoted a little bit more in the blog, but it's pretty cut and dry. If you do not love your brothers and sisters, you're not in Christ. You're dead to the faith. You're not a Christian. It's it's really that simple. Um, Now, I'm not saying that there is no grace. Okay, I'm not saying that when we fail, there is no grace. But if there really is no indication of love, um, well, I guess you'll have to contend with John's words. And finally, this foot washing ends in a beatitude. A beatitude, I mean, you will be blessed if you do this. The Gospel of John only uses this phrasing twice. It uses it here and then at the very end, I think in chapter 19, but don't quote me on that. Um, So this is very much a promise, right? If you love this way, you will be blessed. Now, what does it mean to be blessed, right? I find that that is always a hard thing to interpret. Are you going to get things in this life? And those things, will they be internal, like a sense of joy? or, Or will they be external, like wealth or friendships or is this the kind of blessing blessing you would get in in the afterlife in heaven i you know if i had more time i I would probably you know talk about this more but without having that amount of time i would say that i think it's all of the above Um, i think that it will bless your relationships i think it will bless you internally i think that it will bless you in heaven i think all of those things will come and uh I think that Jesus' words will not fail. When he says you will be blessed by this, I think uh, that we can rely on that. Okay, another big thing that comes out of the chapter is Judas the betrayer. Now, we have already talked about Judas a little bit in prior sessions, but we we get, I suppose, additional information here. Jesus makes abundantly clear right, that he picked Judas, right, that he picked all of his disciples, including Judas, knowing exactly what would happen. So Jesus is very careful to explain, hey, this didn't uh, catch me by surprise. Why? For two reasons, right? This maintains his divinity, the fact that Jesus would know this, right, if he is God, so he's making that clear. Um, But also, This also uh, shows that Jesus is deliberately walking towards the cross. None of this is by surprise. Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen, and he's going to follow through willingly. Effectively, we can say Jesus is sacrificing himself, uh, right? He's not, I mean, uh, how do I phrase this without getting in trouble? Both statements are true. Jesus was murdered, and Jesus sacrificed himself. We can say both of those statements are, in fact, true. Um, the way, well, nah, I mean, now there's there's one point that I was going to make, but for the sake of time, I'm going to skip that one, and I may come back to it later, depending on whether there's any questions. Okay, now when Jesus highlights Judas the betrayer, at least to John, right, and possibly to Peter, um, how does he do it? And I want to explain this so we can at least imagine the scene. We can imagine what's going on. It's it's quite clear, or we let me rephrase. We can assume that Jesus is is seating is sitting, sorry, in the middle of the middle couch. Okay, in the middle of the middle couch, and then from the text we can clearly see that John is to the right of Jesus, and then Peter must be on the other couch, the couch to the right. So Peter whispers to John, and then in the text, right, it says that John leans into the chest of Jesus and then whispers to Jesus. (laughs) You might be thinking, this is so weird. Why Why would John lean into his chest? What is going on here? Remember what I discussed earlier, the fact that they are essentially reclining sideways with you know, holding their head with their with their left hand on these mattresses. And in this case, John, 
and this is gonna sound funny. I apologize, but John is little spoon, and so he's leaning into big spoon and whispering these words. Um, what I think is also fairly safe to speculate, because Jesus says, "Hey, whoever I hand this piece of bread to is the guy who's gonna betray me." Now imagine how they're leaning; they really cannot reach very far with their right hand. So I think it's it's quite safe to assume that Judas is actually also sitting right next to Jesus on his left side. Now, this is relevant because the people sitting next to Jesus or leaning, you know, next to Jesus, they would be enjoying the the places of honor, right? And notice that it is not Peter, the person we would expect, but it's John and Judas. Also, as a as an interesting historical note, and take this with a grain of salt, there is ancient tradition that says that the host honors the most highly the person to his left. Why? Because the person to your left would be the, the one who has the best opportunity to betray you, to actually like get you from your back. Uh, so if you put somebody to your left, that means you'd really trust them. Now, does that tradition apply at this time in this meal? You know, you. I personally think so but perhaps not take that with a grain of salt. Okay, so Jesus points out uh, Judas and then Satan enters Judas. Okay. Just like I pointed out, uh, I think it was either the last session or the one before, we don't really learn a whole lot about Satan or the devil or devils in general or demons in the Gospel of John. In the other gospels, in the synoptics, you actually get, or you hear about demon possessions, and then there's exorcisms. In this gospel, there's none of that. In fact, John really only mentions Satan, This it would be five times. There's the time that he talks about the prince of the, of the world, that, you know, we discussed that. Uh, John speaks of the devil, just three times, and then about Satan, only this one time. Now, when you go through all those mentions, and they're all listed in the blog in case anybody's interested, but it it paints a clear picture of Satan as the murderer. Okay. To give you to give you some examples, the very first mention of the devil is Jesus saying, didn't I choose you, the 12, and yet one of you is the devil, right? Speaking of the guy who's who's going to betray him to his death. Um, then in a, in a different chapter, Jesus says, you people are from your father, the devil, and you want to do what your father desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, right? Then in this chapter, we see that the devil enters Judas to empower him to do this very wicked deed that will result in the death of Jesus. So th this is not to say, by the way, that, that somehow John is saying that those other demon possessions and exorcisms didn't happen. No, not at all. It's just that's not what John wants to focus on. John's, John is completely focused on the fact that the devil is at play to murder Jesus, right? And Notice that this will stand in stark contrast with, with what will happen later on in John's gospel, which is that the Holy Spirit will enter into the disciples and other believers to empower them to do good deeds, right? To do the works of God. But for Judas, it is the devil, the spirit of the devil, we could say, I suppose, that goes into him to empower him to do a very wicked deed. So, really, I point this out to say, if somebody said the devil killed Jesus, there is a sense in which that is true. Now, the devil didn't do it directly, of course, you know, he used Judas to betray Jesus, and then the Jews were involved, the Romans were involved, we can point fingers to a lot of people. But it is certainly true that the devil was intimately involved in this process. And then... The chapter ends with a new commandment. And I said, you know, that the theme of this chapter really was love. And here is kind of the culmination of that, of that theme. Jesus says, I give you a new commandment, right? To love one another as I have loved you. 
Now, before I discuss that, let me introduce some linguistic concerns that I think is important to clear up. Jesus refers to his disciples as children. This might seem odd to us. I suppose nowadays that would be pejorative if somebody called you a child, right? They're insulting you, uh, unless you are an actual child, of course. Um, but that is not the case at the time. This was a way of referring to your disciples, to those who follow you. And then the leader, the teacher, you know, the, the rabbi, he might be referred to as father, particularly using the word Abba. Okay. The word Abba is Aramaic. It's an, it's an Aramaic word for father. Now, this word Abba is used elsewhere in the New Testament. In fact, Jesus refers to God the Father as Abba. Now, there is, I think, a little bit of a mis misimpression nowadays about this particular term. Certainly, Abba uh, implies a level of closeness, right? So people sometimes say this is a term of endearment, like the word daddy. Um, sure, to some extent, like to some extent, that is true. But what we forget is how this word is used, right? This word is being used as a term of honor to call somebody a rabbi, a teacher, a leader, right? You know, sort of like your boss, okay? So when this word is used of somebody, it is to connote that they're honored, respected, and followed. And if we translate the word Abba as daddy, Sure, we get the closeness, but we lose all of the other stuff. We lose the fact that we're honoring the person and we're showing obedience to them. Okay. So in case you've come across this linguistic issue, um, is, uh, it's important to keep in mind. Well, the other important thing before I go into this new commandment is that this is actually the only commandment that, or the only, the only order that Jesus expressly calls a commandment in the Gospel of John. Let me put it that way. Because certainly there's other commandments we could say. They're at least implied. But this is the only time in the Gospel of John that Jesus says, I command you to do the following. And I think that alone should let us know, hey, I need to pay attention to this one, right? Um, well, what is the first thing we should think about? when we read this quote unquote new commandment, I think we should be a little bit kind of surprised and go, is this new? Now the answer will eventually be yes, <laughs> but we should definitely ask the question, why? Because uh, Israelites had already been commanded to love each other in the Old Testament. In fact, we see commandments similar to this one in places like Leviticus, which is one of the earliest books in the Old Testament, right? Uh, for example, this would be Le Le Leviticus 19.18. You must not take vengeance or bear a grudge against any of your people, but you must love your neighbor as yourself, right? You must love your neighbor as yourself. That was already part of the law. So how is this a new commandment? Now, just um, for you to not think that I am just inventing some controversy, inventing some question, notice that John himself notices this, right? Notices that this commandment is sort of old and sort of new, because when we read one of his letters, again, there's not in the Gospel of John, but in one of his letters, he says the following, Dear friends, I am not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment, which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have already heard. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Okay. So John himself recognizes that there is an old commandment in here and a new commandment. And I think it's important for us to discern what is the old and what is the new. Well, I think that the answer to this question is the standard for how we ought to love one another. Before it was, you must love your neighbor as yourself. And now it is, you must love as I have loved you with the I in that sentence, of course, being Jesus. So you must love as Jesus has loved us. So it is a higher standard of love now. It builds on that old foundation, but it takes it up another notch. Now, we may say, what's the difference in practical terms? That, that may be somewhat hard to put into words, but at the very least, we can say 
from from the example and the text of the foot washing and the fact that it's connected to the death of Christ, we can say there is a just an incredible level of humility and service to one another and a dedication that goes to the very end, right? The, it is a love that is sacrificial to the utmost. Now, I, I do want to point out that it's, it's clear that in this text, Jesus is talking about believers loving one another. So this is, he's talking to the community, right? To Christians, not to Christians loving non-Christians. Now, of course, this does not mean that this passage is somehow saying, do not love people outside the community. Do not love people who are not believers. Um, there's several reasons for this. Probably the easiest reason to spot that it's just in the text is that Jesus says, other people, non-believers, will know you're Christians. They will know you're followers of mine because of this love that you show one another. So actually, one of the prime benefits of demonstrating this kind of love is to share the gospel, right? If we if we really are doing this well, people outside will go, wow, they got something good going. And so uh, some of this love within the community is for the benefit of those outside the community. And of course, Jesus in other places, not in this text, says love your enemy. Uh, again, there's a number of other places that point to love of enemies. Um, and Again, as this is connected to the cross, think about the love that Jesus is showing his enemies, those who are crucifying him, those who reject him. Jesus is still serving them. He's still dying on their behalf. Um, so, um, but but I do, want, I do want to point that out, that in this text, we are talking about brothers loving brothers and sisters, of course. Last thing I will say on, on love, and then I'm going to move on to a related question, is that this idea of love is so important to the Christian faith that Jesus actually summarizes all of the Old Testament law into two commandments of love. Uh, this would this is in the synoptics, it's not in John, but I think it connects to this and, and it's such a famous passage that we should at least bring it up. In Matthew 22:34, Jesus says the following, or the following seen as described. Now, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they assembled together. And one of them, an expert in religious law, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which commandment in the law is the greatest? Jesus said to him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commandments. Okay, this is central to a Christianity. Well, the other question that I think is interesting that we should consider is: Is Jesus introducing a new ethical model? Right. I mean, new from what? Well, new from the Old Testament, right? because the Old Testament certainly introduces some ethical framework. Is Jesus deviating from it? Is he building on it? And I certainly take the latter approach. Um, notice that what Jesus is doing here in chapter 13 is saying, do as I do, right? Do as I do. That is, that at the end of the day is how we could summarize his lesson. Do we see that in the Old Testament? We do. We see it all over the place. Uh, probably the easiest example would be also in Leviticus, when we see in chapter 11, verse 44, it says, For I am the Lord your God, and you are to sanctify yourselves and be holy because I am holy. Right? God the Father is telling the Israelites, be like me. I am holy, so you should also be holy. And in chapter 13, Jesus is saying the same thing. He's saying, be like me. I love this way. You love this way. So Jesus is building on that ethical framework and adding this requirement, adding this new commandment. You don't only need to be holy like God is holy. Now you must be loving like God is loving. Uh, so he's actually raising the bar. And here I would like to, to introduce one last comment and I will I will open it up to, to questions. Um, this idea of becoming like God in character is in my opinion, and, and I think in the opinion of many scholars, 
the crux of the Christian ethical model, which is that Christians should try to act like God acts or be like God is. That probably is the better phrasing. When I say that, I don't mean try to be all powerful or omniscient or something like that, but try to be holy like God is holy. Try to be loving like God is loving, right? Try to be righteous like God is righteous. Uh, this is the goal and the challenge for every Christian. Now, it is true, of course, that no Christian will become perfect, no Christian, or at least not in this life. But that is still the commandment that we have been given. It is still the goal. And at the end of the day, it is the promise, right? The, the word that we use for when people get to heaven and they are actually perfect in that moral sense is impeccable. And so that is the promise. One day, uh, everyone who places their faith in Christ will be impeccable. They will be like Christ in love and holiness and righteousness. So, and I'm sorry, Matt, I normally I ask you to ask for questions before I'm done, but I'll, I'll hand it over to you. Oh, I think you're muted. There we go. Thanks for letting me know. As I, as I was saying, that's uh, perfectly all right. I think everybody knows the rules. So uh, I'm just scanning the, the chat to make sure I haven't missed any requests for comment or question. It doesn't look like I have. So uh, now that we're open for question and discussions, oh, uh, Denby, I do see you. I'll get to you in a minute. Um, Go ahead and just write question in the chat as we usually do, and I will pull you in uh, in the order that we receive the requests. Uh, first, I'll offer some of my own thoughts or at least a question for you, Robert. And I, I do notice that we're getting into some of these moral and ethical themes toward the end of the, the lesson here that I that's when my ears perk up because that's really what brought me to this discussion in the first place. So I, I certainly appreciate that. And I. Uh, we'll listen attentively as we discuss those things. But my questions are, or at least I have two. If there are time, I'll, I'll get into a second one. But you you mentioned at one point that Jesus was murdered and and Jesus sacrificed himself. Yeah. Those are simultaneously true, and you alluded to some controversy about that statement. But I'd like to understand the controversy. Is the controversy that that implies that Jesus... To me, that implies a suicide or something like that. Like you willingly submit to a murder that sounds, for lack of a better term, like a suicidal gesture. Or am I missing I, the controversy? No, I think, well, the, the thing is, this is, it's difficult to understand how God acts when he knows all things and he's able to set things in motion, right? When he's the creator and the person who knows all things, and then he interacts with his creation, uh, Jesus certainly sacrificed himself. I wouldn't say suicide because that might convey the, the wrong idea, mm -hmm. but um, I, I think if we just say that, that Christ quote unquote, committed suicide, that may remove any guilt from the people who did the thing, right? Who, who actually did the killing. Um, okay. And I don't think that we want to do that. At the same time, if we just emphasize the fact that Christ was murdered, it, it might make us forget that Christ went to the cross willingly. Um, and so both, it's important to I think to affirm both at once that that Christ sacrificed himself because he knew exactly what would happen and went through with it anyways, but Christ did not cause those people to murder him. Um, and it's a very difficult scenario because of God's foreknowledge. And it, it this gets very complicated and I was trying to navigate murky waters <laughs> without yeah. messing up. Yeah. Okay. I, I'm just curious as to, I get why that seems like sort of a, contradiction would be too strong of a word, but there's sort of a, like a paradox there. Yeah. Um, the controversy is what, is what I feel unclear about it. It's what, what's the, what's controversial about that? Or maybe that's just, maybe I'm, maybe I misheard and that's not necessarily what you meant. Yeah, perhaps. Well, perhaps I, I just didn't express myself correctly. I suppose I just, was thinking, for example, of the verse where, where the, the Jews respond, let it be on our heads, right? Like the, the fact that Jesus will be killed. Mm -hmm. And so if I just said, hey, Christ is, you know, 
sacrificing himself and it's all his own doing, all Jesus doing, then people might say, well, what about this verse? Uh, and, and what I was trying to essentially point out is, look, it's both. It's both. We, I think we need to affirm both. Okay. Thank you for the uh, added detail on that. Uh, Denby, I think you are first up. So go ahead and chime in if you're ready. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Um, so uh, for the first uh, question, uh, Robert, is, uh, is about um, question, I guess, comment slash question is about the, um, the foot washing. Now, um, what occurred to me uh, you know, quite a while ago, and this is, I think, especially illustrates it, is that at the time, I don't think that Jesus could have just straightforwardly said to his followers, to his disciples, slavery is wrong. I don't think they would have understood what he was saying because that was just like the air they, they breathed. It was part of the world around them, you know, like a lot of things today that we just take as you know, for granted. But wouldn't you, wouldn't you say that this uh, foot washing thing kind of damaged without trying to get them to like Denby, I hate to cut you off, but I lost you there for about five, ten seconds. Worldview. Sorry. Uh, okay. I just um, can I back you up maybe 15, uh, 20 seconds just cause, yeah, because the recording sure. too will be I lost you, so therefore the recording yeah. lost you, I, I believe. So I got you. Okay, so right, what cool. what did you last hear me say? So I, I can't recall exactly where you left off, but maybe just back up about 30 seconds in your yeah, question. Sure. Okay. Right. So, so um, yeah. So, you know, in, uh, you know, I was thinking that it might be very difficult for to, him to explain to them exactly, you know, like, like to, just to explain, but if he, you know, this way he demonstrates like, you know, by like demonstrating how they're supposed to treat people in the future, like they're supposed to, uh, uh, you know, wash the feet of you know um, beggars, you know, well, mm-hmm. just the the low, you know, the poorest of the poor. That you know, he's instituting this new standard of how to treat people, and that's how eventually we came to understand that slavery is wrong. What what do you think? Oh, you're going to get me in hot water, but I, I will give you my honest opinion and then sure. feel free to push back. Um, okay. I think that it's very hard to make a biblical case to say that all forms of slavery are wrong. And uh, okay. the reason I say that is because God established a form of slavery in the Old Testament. And so that would commit us to say that God kind of instituted something evil back then. Now, um, I know that that would already, you know, get me canceled everywhere just for saying that. But I think it's true. I think that we see a form of slavery in the Old Testament. So I think that being said, most forms of slavery, nearly all of them, perhaps, I would say, are are wrong, right? Because they they lead to abuse or they're abusive in themselves. And I think you're very right, though, in what you're saying, because when Jesus says, serve one another in this extremely humble and sacrificial way it is hard to maintain systems of oppression now i sound like a leftist i apologize but it's it's hard to maintain systems of oppression when you don't see yourself as better than the other person right when you see them as being just as valuable as you and so i think that but that by focusing in love for one another instead of one political system like or political institution like slavery it essentially permeates the political system to where it ends up eliminating it because um, people will not put up with that. They will say that person is worth just as much as me. They should have the rights that I have. And so we need to put an end to this. Um, so I, I essentially agree with you mm-hmm. just with the little caveat that I gave at the beginning. All right. Thanks, Denby. Did you have any uh, follow-up kind thoughts? Skipping. Oh, maybe we have a, part, a bad connection, I think. Yeah. Okay. I just lost both of both of you for a moment, but uh, thank you, Denby. Um, Due to connection, we might just have to call it there. I don't know that uh, because Denby's frozen for me. So I appreciate the question. And Denby, if you have a follow-up that you want to offer, just go ahead and type it in the chat and I'll see if I can come back to you. Uh, Let's see. I don't have additional requests for questions at this point. I don't. Oh, there is one question for me. 
Daniel asks me up to this point, what assumptions of the gospel did you have and how have they changed? I think the biggest surprise for me is just some of the character elements of Jesus. I know we talked about this early on. Uh, There's kind of like, I don't, there were just more aggressive moments like the table flipping at the marketplace and the whipping of people and all this. Uh, He's for a layman and someone who has not seriously studied the, the scripture. I always just see him as the Birkenstock wearing hippie who, is presented as sort of a laissez-faire guy, like anything goes, you do you, man. He practically is, you know, smoking weed and just uh, (laughs) hanging out playing video games or something. And I think it's fair to say, well, at least in my, my understanding so far, like obviously this is a person who's trying to guide people toward a life of, I don't know, uh, love, compassion, these sorts of values as guiding principles. But I wouldn't describe him as like a, a you do you kind of guy. Like clearly he has a set of rules. He is trying to teach people to abide by and fair to say, I think there are are consequences for failure to abide by those rules that, that he's trying to teach people about too. So I, I, I wouldn't, at least from my perspective, I don't view him as some kind of like vengeful person, like trying to beat people up on the street or something, but he's not the, he's not the hippie, I suppose that, he's sometimes presented as that's that's my takeaway and i uh that, that's probably the biggest surprise for me so far robert do you think i got any of that wrong and i'm sure i got i might mischaracterize things but you know i'm learning about this through you so if you feel like <laughs> i've misunderstood you no i mean i think that's exactly right i think that jesus is not this like kumbaya hippie that people imagine and it's funny how even like liberal Christians will do that, right? It's like, oh, Jesus was just all about love. And it's like, no, I mean, like like I was discussing today, Jesus emphasized love, but he wasn't all about love. <laughs> there was more going on there. Well, and it's it's love of what? You know, he he is all about love of a particular sort. And you know, I know this I know this isn't about politics. I don't want to go down that road, but it has some parallels where it's like love is love or you know, love of what? is is what is what Jesus is thinking about. He's teaching people about a particular type of love, not just love whatever you want and do whatever you want. Yep. But uh, anyway, uh, thank you for the question, Daniel. I appreciate it. Patrick uh, and Denby, uh, I don't know if you heard me earlier because of the connection issue, but uh, oh, Denby, you, you said you do have one more. So I'll tell you what, Denby, I'm going to get to Patrick and then I'll come back to you. Okay. So let's go Patrick first and then Denby. Uh, can you hear me? Yes, sir. Cool. Um, so, Robert, um, maybe treading into uh, trouble territory again, but you know, now that the slavery thing is brought up, that's always been something that you know has been a struggle. You know, as far as you know, when people learn about Christianity, and then when people ask about you know Christianity or critique Christianity, and so you know, you had kind of mentioned it. You know, you touched on it briefly about like you know not necessarily all forms of slavery, you know, being inherently evil. Um, you know, is there any, I guess, general way that you approach that if somebody asks you as far as, you know, uh, talking to non-believers, you know, and how you answer questions about slavery or, you know, any resources even, uh, that you have that you recommend to, you know, learn more and understand more about how that worked at the time. Sure. I, I don't know that I have any resources in mind, but I can give you the response that I would give them, which is they really need to understand how tough the ancient world was. There were no resources to spare. Okay, There were no resources for criminals, meaning that or 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 the indigent for that matter. So let's say that you lost all that you owned okay let's say that you borrowed money because that did happen in the ancient world you borrowed money uh you you know you bought some land you bought some equipment well animals not equipment but some animals for that land but you mismanaged it or there was a tragedy you lost it all and now you have nothing well what would happen to you in the ancient world unless you had a family that could support you right if you had a family then that's fine they're your backup plan good deal. Let's say you don't have that strong family to support you. There is no welfare of any kind whatsoever. So 
your destiny actually was to die. Uh, and I, this sounds extreme, but it is the truth. You would have had no food. You would have had no shelter. You just would have died. So what was their form of social welfare? It was actually slavery, indentured servitude. What you could do in that terrible situation was go sell yourself, mind you, to one of your people, right? You're not selling yourself to a foreign person, to other nations or whatever. You're supposed to sell yourself to a fellow Israelite. And in the year of Jubilee, you would be set free. So this was not a slavery forever. Now, your master had responsibilities, right? Your master would have had to clothe you and feed you. Now, he would put you to work, absolutely. But here were the alternatives. You could either die destitute or you could become a servant of one of your kinsmen and live and eventually become free again. Unless, of course, you decided not to become free. Um, this system was good enough, I will say, um, that some people chose to remain servants of whoever their master was, right? It, and so people who just attack all forms of indentured servitude or all forms of slavery just wholesale do not understand the ancient world and how this was actually a brilliant form of social welfare. Because if it was not this, it was nothing. The only alternative, which is complete destitution and death. I agree. Thanks, Thank you. That makes a lot of sense. Thanks. Thank you. Uh, Denby, did you want to offer your follow-up? Denby? Well, maybe he's... Ah, there we go. Hey, uh, yeah. Um, well, just first of all, I, I, I meant slavery in our modern understanding, but not like... Yeah. You know. Anyway, uh, so yeah, my second question is about the... Um, I just find it a little confusing and maybe you know based on what you're saying about the way their seating arrangement is um you know how he jesus says that he's going to uh the person he gives the piece of bread to but then it seems like that everyone's confused about like you know where's where's judas going you know what's you know so like it, it seems like they don't understand what what happened there and so i'm wondering like would the seating arrangement account for that like, that just yeah. Yeah. Because I think what you need to picture is remember that. And again, I'm going to use this awful way of describing this again. Everyone forgive me. But remember that Jesus and John are effectively spooning on this couch. So their faces are very close to one another. And so when John, right, turns and leans on Jesus' chest, he's able to speak essentially directly into his ear. And then when Jesus responds, again, he's speaking directly into John's ear. They're whispering here. So the rest of the table, they don't hear it. Um, and so that's why everybody's surprised because this wasn't just a conversation out loud for everybody to hear. They're having a little, you know, they're telling secrets over there. Nobody else gets to hear it. And then when it happens and Judas gets up, everybody's going, you know, what happened here? Um, so, that's why that makes sense. It's very different, right? If they were sitting like in modern times, sitting at a table, you would actually have to lean into the other person. It would be quite clear to everyone that you're telling secrets. That would not have been the case given their seating arrangement. Thanks, Embi. Uh, we do have two more requests for a question or comment. I know we're right up against the top of the hour. I'm not on a time crunch. So if you guys can be quick, I can accommodate it if you can, Robert. Okay, uh, let's go Daniel first, and then um, Brian, we'll get to you after that. Oh, hey. Yeah, um, I, I just wanted to offer maybe a couple of thoughts on the slavery thing um, and see what Robert, you know, how Robert reacted. Um, just wanted to mention, you know, it, it is, uh, you know, canonical, so to speak. It is It is consistent with scripture to say that um, there, there is a, uh, not, not an outright change to the old law. Of course, Jesus is explicit about that, but there is, a a greater understanding of how God feels about them, um, about the law and about some of the rules, some of the civil rules that he gave to them. Um, this comes up with divorce in particular, and that he says, okay, God, God allowed you to have divorce because of the hardness of your hearts, but he actually hates divorce. Right. Yeah. And so 
he brought them out of slavery in Egypt. And, you know, he's described as having heard their cry. Mm-hmm. And it, so it seems as though, you know, God is aware, you know, the, the, a system uh, where um, one, uh, man is subjugated by another man is, is not, you know, that's not paradise. <laughs> that's not mm-hmm. ideal. Um, but given the, you know, the, as he put it, the, the hardness of your hearts, the, um, the evil that, that people have within them. Uh, this, as you said, you know, and it's, it, it is sort of uh, shaped into a system that is far less oppressive and where people go free after a certain amount of time and all of that. Um, so just thought I'd uh, see how you see, see what you thought about that. Yeah. Thank you for adding that. That really kind of brings balance to this conversation, which is that uh, God is working in this fallen world, right? Because of course the ideal, like if we were in heaven, nobody would be destitute. So even that indentured servitude system that was implemented in the Old Testament would not exist because nobody would ever be in that situation. And even if, right, in ideal circumstances, if that ever did happen, people would just help them. And that would be that. But we live in a fallen world. So we need systems that uh, reach less than ideal uh, solutions because we are dealing with less than ideal circumstances and problems. So thank you for pointing that out. I think that's very correct. Thanks, Daniel. And last word goes to Brian. Brian, go ahead and chime in if you're ready. Yay, thanks. I get the last word. Um, That's an excellent point that, uh, I'm sorry, I missed the gentleman's name who just said that. Yeah, a lot of the Old Testament is the, the, the law of Moses. It's a concession to the fact that we're sinners, just like divorce. But to add to that point, um, just as an example of an overall pattern regarding slavery, among other issues, there's a there's a specific law that says that if if a if a slave flees his master to one of your cities, give him sanctuary, don't give him back to his master. This effectively makes slavery voluntary. Um, if, if the situation is so bad that somebody, somebody runs off there, the, the law favors the slave, not the master. Um, and if, if, and anybody who hasn't done this, I would encourage you to do it. Unfortunately, they're not all collected in one place, but if you go back and, and just read all the laws related to slavery in, in the Torah, it's actually a system to end slavery, um, by making it voluntary like the israelites weren't allowed to it specifically says if you want to buy slaves and one of your fellow israelites isn't in debt and work and uh doesn't want to sell himself to you you have to go to the to the neighboring countries buy them there and then when you bring them back they're subject to uh they're under the protections of the torah regarding slaves and masters um and there are other there are other laws that say that you're not to have a separate set of laws for for Israelites and for foreigners. So basically, they get all the same protections that an Israelite gets as a slave, and they and it makes it voluntary. If you're a slave in a surrounding nation and you get bought by an Israelite, you won the lottery. Um, so when you when you consider all that in the context of the ancient world. Um, all, all of these, all of these criticisms you hear from atheists and skeptics about how the the Bible uh, slavery it's just it's just based in ignorance. They they found the word slavery and they automatically think antebellum chattel slavery, and it's not that at all. But uh, anyway, I it would take a good thirty minutes to do the subject justice. But I would I would recommend anybody with the interest who hasn't done so to, to go back and read those. But uh, anyway, I, I know time is short. That's all I got. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Brian. Uh, another speaking of things I've learned or perspectives changed through the gospel slavery done, right? That is a, a theme of the evening. <laughs> I've actually heard this before. I like, I've heard that phrase, not yeah, right. My, yeah. Anyway, that that and to the point that Brian's making that what we're talking about here is is different. It, it's and this is being mentioned in the chat as well. It's the negotiation of payment for a debt, yeah. and uh, and that is something that is different than say the the uh, forcefully putting someone to labor against their will, even if the same word is used to describe that. So I appreciate that, and I, I appreciate the point you raised, Brian, just about being mindful of that 
because that is a criticism that I that I hear. Oh, you mean that stupid old book that says slavery is okay? Yeah, I bet it knows everything else about everything too. And yeah, it's it's often used for dismissal when in reality, even though the 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 word implies otherwise, it is there's a lot of complexity here. There's a lot of detail that makes it a fundamentally different moral issue than you think of when you think of the word slavery, I suppose. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, if I can just add something, I'm, of course, I'm sure yeah. this statement will get me canceled one day, but it was a brilliant form of welfare. It it really was. Like, I would encourage anybody who is still kind of on the fence about this, just imagine somebody, maybe you know, in your own life who's just helpless, right? Maybe they're not super smart. They can't handle their finances. I mean, they're a wreck for a number of things. Now, it put them in the wilderness with zero help. Okay. It really, the only way to take care of that person at that time, I'm not, I'm not advocating to do this today, uh, but it would have been to put them under the kind of strong direction of somebody else and say, look, now you're going to have to work for me and do what I tell you. And that will actually give you shelter and clothing and food, and you will be all right. And if they didn't have that, again, the alternative was death. And I know that sounds so scandalous to say, but it's, it's true. I'm sorry. No, I appreciate that. I appreciate the discussion on it. And Daniel says in the chat, Robert says biblical slavery is a brilliant form of slavery and Matt responds slavery done right. Yeah. Um, I, I, I appreciate the, the discussion on this, uh, not only from you, Robert, but from everybody else offering their thoughts. And uh, thank you for enlightening me on, on yet another issue and something to think about. Uh, I'll, I'll contemplate the my enlightened ethics on slavery throughout the week. <laughs> Uh, did you have any other closing thoughts before we're out of here, Robert? No, that was it. All right. Well, uh, thank you guys as always for your participation. Uh, we will be back next weekend, uh, November t- uh, 12th at, uh, at 8 PM Eastern time. As usual, as a reminder, if you missed any part of the lesson and you'd like to listen back, or if you'd like to read Robert's notes, or if you'd like to get in touch with either one of us, you can do that through the Bible study page of the website linked on the homepage. That's mattchristensenmedia.com. Look for the Bible study link. Uh, We will see you next week. Thanks, everybody.